Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending uh, February 28. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you are going to hear Daniel James uh, filling in for Daniel Burt again for another week, for a second week. Uh, it's been lovely having him in. Uh, and you're also going to hear Nat Harris at the end of the week jumping in for Jez. It's just been up and down. But also a bunch of conversations that we had. So we kicked off the week with Marie Hardy in to talk about better offset eulogies for the living and the dead. Uh, we had a bit of a chat about Daniel James's cat, which had a great name called Cosmic Creatures. It disappeared for six whole bloody years. Uh, Michael Harden was in talking about the loveliness of ugly vegetables. Simonia Baldy loved Honey Boy. You can hear her movie review as well. Uh, Ricky Lee Erickson was in talking seahorses and the weird things they do, like spray tiny seahorses out of their stomachs. Uh, and Nat Harris was in on Friday filling in for Jez and uh, regaled us with her new love of pan pipes. Melbourne's own Triple R. So what is it that you want to be able to say to loved ones before they spring off this mortal coil? It's a question that I find that we don't actually ask ourselves often enough. We often leave it till it's too late, until the person has passed away and all you're left with is memories and things that you should say or wanted to say. Um, fortunately, our next guest has come up with a brilliant idea. And our next guest being, of course, Marie Cardi, writer, former breakfaster, former artistic director of the Melbourne Writers Festival, and co-producer of a new talk series, Better Off Said, Eulogies for the Living and the Dead. Marie, thank you for coming in. Hi, friend. Hello. Good morning. Morning. There are a couple of formers in there, but I got a present. (laughs) You don't want to be too former. That's very eulogy. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God, yes, you're eulogising me. Thank you so (laughs) much. That's so on brand. Now, this is an excellent idea, I think. Thank you. I think so, too. (laughs) Um, Where was the genesis for it? Well, Emily Zoe Baker, um, who I co-produced the event with, and I are both very interested in death art. And reminding people that they're going to die because I do think it's important. I, I think Absolutely. I, for me personally, I never live more fully than when I remind myself that this experience is all finite. Yep. It stops you from getting too wound up about very small things and makes you appreciate others, which does sound quite earnest. But I think we don't, in this culture specifically, we don't think a lot about death. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. Um, and that's why often when people die, we think, oh, I don't know what they wanted. And mm. I now we're playing who let mm. the dogs out as grandma's coffin goes down. And I'm like, did she want that? I don't know. We never Never spoke about it. So I think it is really important to talk about. I like talking about it all the time. You're like, this, we're all going to die and we're alive at the same time, us four people in this room. Isn't that cool and weird? And um, so Emily and I uh, created this event because we do love the idea of eulogising people while we still can because yeah. often we don't reflect on what we feel about someone and tell them how much they mean to us and articulate our feelings for them until it's too late. So I think it's important to give that that space. I, I um. I wrote an essay called 10 More Days that um, was basically uh, a, a eulogy to my father. He passed away and I, you know, the, the, the essay was rumination on if I just had 10 more days yep. with him, what could have I have learned from him? What could he have learned from me? 
and what what we would we have discovered about ourselves and, and our culture. So this idea is something that resonates with me very, very strongly. Yeah, I feel like uh, we've done three shows now. We do it at Spiegel Tent once a month. It's a monthly spoken word event. And the premise of the show is we get four guests to uh, write and read on a topic, the words I wish I'd said. Yeah. And then one guest does a living eulogy. So we're saying we're inviting them to eulogise someone or something that's still with us. So the first uh, show, uh, Annie Lou Bennett did uh, the Jabberung birthing tree and yeah, eulogised right. the Jabberung birthing tree, which was really beautiful. Jan Fran did Scott Morrison. Uh, Claire, Bo- <laughs> Claire Bowditch did last month at something very personal, which um, we recorded, but I don't think she wanted to leave the room. So it was something sure. very beautiful. But it, I kind of like how broad the premise is. Like the words you wish you'd said could have been, I mean, um, Maria Tamarkin did last month, uh, who wrote the peerless axiomatic, and she just uh, wrote about the word no. Mm. And how she, there were opportunities that she wished she'd said the word no. So I feel like it's broad enough that it's not going to be five people every month talking about their parents, although there's a lot of things (laughs) we want to say to our parents. But, um, you know, when we all think about the words we wish we'd said or or eulogizing someone or something, because I think that living eulogy can be a memory or a place. Mm -hmm. Or um, when I was talking to Claire about something, I'm like, you could eulogize your children's childhoods. Because as they move into adulthood, it's a living thing, but it's it's finished. And how to, you know, pay tribute to something like that while we still can. So, yeah, it's really it's a really exciting premise, and people are taking it with the with what we've present, presented to them, which is that opportunity for catharsis mm. and letting go and space and healing, which is really Emily and I really work on creating those spaces in the world. Do you think? Well, what is then the biggest difference for you between a eulogy and say? Previously, you've done a, the letters yeah. series, which was writing a letter to could anything, be a, anything mm, whatever yeah. it could be. What do you think makes a eulogy a eulogy and a reflection a reflection? Like, what is it? What's the heart of a eulogy? It's, I, you know, I mean, I think that any giving anyone the chance to contemplate that this isn't all forever, like mm. this isn't going to last, and what is it to say goodbye to something while you still can, and mm. say and to say thank you to something while you still can, I think is very beautiful. So we're, it's so amazing. So women of letters and better off said, I mean, it's all like what is the inroad to giving someone the space to sit down and take a piece of paper and reflect on their life, and and something they wish they'd said. And what I really love about or loved about women of letters and love about this as well is that there's that connection of human experience from someone on on the stage and someone in the audience is that we are having a very shared experience I mean DJ I think you know a lot of us think what would I have said to my parent or relative and to have someone articulate that on stage and in the audience someone going well I've had that experience as well I think it it creates something quite beautiful and women of letters had that that same thing I think what's what's the trick to to creating that safe space that sacred it's a sacred space pretty much for the afternoon What's, what's the trick? I don't know. I mean, when Women of Letters started, Michaela and I never intended for it to be this kind of huge emotional wash thing. You know? <laughs> it was really, you know, by show two, someone started speaking very personally. We went, oh, my God, this is a, a – and I think it was about the letter. Mm-hmm. It was the format of the letter. And I guess with this one, because we're talking about potentially letting go and surrendering and grief, it also gives people that opportunity. I think we're very respectful for to the readers and the audience as well. Like, mm. I, I don't ever want to exploit someone feelings for the sake of we're putting on this great show and someone's talking about their dead dad like I'm not I'm not interested in that at all it's like how can this be beneficial to the people who are reading as well as to the people who are sitting in the room like what makes it meaningful 
I mean, I'm not. I'm just not interested yeah. in making art for the sake of. I think that yeah. when you talk about that connection, there's always going to be someone in the audience that connects to what the person has written and is saying. Like the times that I've done Women of Letters, like I've approached it and have just been some. One of them it was just kind of silly, and it, I didn't set out to be deeply personal or anything it was just uh, oh this has happened blah 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 and there, but it's still it's, there is someone in the audience that will connect to it and that's yeah. probably the same thing that's happening with this you know and, and I, mean, I guess the way that we look to curate these events like you know we make sure that there's you know a bit of balance shade and light <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to leave there completely emotionally wrung out oh you do a little bit but yeah. you know you've got to have those moments of being held as well otherwise so. the entire audience is going to end up in a shower with a whiskey yeah. oh my god <laughs> I hope so that's my aspiration for all my events who who have we got on the on the show this Sunday so this Sunday afternoon um, the words I wish I'd said are Emrushiano and San Tilla Chingepe, Jack Lattimore, and Green Senator Sarah Hanson Young. Now, I am very excited to know what does she wish she'd said because she's very outspoken yes. consistently and just had that amazing kind of stash with David <coughs> Lionhelm. And Hopefully it's like, she talks about that. That'd be mm. fantastic. Well, I mean, but what what's unsaid with that amazing <laughs> person? And then the living eulogy is Candy Bowers. And then every every month we have someone play some music and Alara is playing like a set at the end. So that uh, kind of the music kind of holds a, everyone at the end. Yeah, yeah, it's a banger isn't it yeah because yeah. previously um you had paul kelly do, yeah and it was that the first time he'd played his latest track yeah at, the, at the, the, he debuted yeah it? at last month's show yeah. which was just an amazing show and um, robert desai and celia pacuola yeah because um, she was talk, talking to me i saw her the next day and she was like it was the most amazing afternoon and she said that everyone was like in tears at paul kelly's song but it was really yeah incredible she loved it yeah it's a big feelings fountain but i think that's important <laughs> i mean we're all you know pretty exhausted by the world and the news and being alive is really hard mm. like and we're all trying so hard mm. so to create this little kind of two-hour pocket in an afternoon where we all kind of sit and you know emotionally hold hands I think is a pretty important thing. Now you're the type of person that likes to keep themselves busy. Yes. What else have you got on the go at the moment? I just opened my first play. Yeah. Like wow. on Valentine's Day at the Opera House. Oh my god. Oh my god. Wow. I yeah. know. No, same. So, yeah. <laughs> it was so I don't intense. I think called Twitter wrote last <laughs> night. But, um, it was oh. really fun after being a film and television writer for 20 years it was like quite torturous to be in the room while people responded yeah, to your right. art in real time. Like I no, Jez, like, that's what you do. Yeah. But for me, it was like you know, 500 people at the Opera House and really kind of like opening night, Sydney Theatre, mm. like Tim Minchin's there and all these politicians. <gasps> it was really singularly horrifying experience. Did you like, last the whole show? Did I, you have to take breaks? I, well, no, I wasn't allowed to leave. That would have But it was amazing and the show's gone really well, but that was a really – I kind of wish I could go back and experience sitting through opening night again knowing that the play, it's going to be all right. Like it's fine. Yes. It's getting yeah, reviewed yeah, yeah. really well, but I don't think I – like took a breath for two it? and a half yeah. hours, and of course you're in there, and everyone could see you, oh. and they're looking, and then they're looking oh, up at the stage, looking so back awful. at you. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm super shy as well, so to be like yeah. the creative person in this room full of everyone kind of glancing over was very uncomfortable. So they pulled it off though. Everyone, everything went fine. It's fine. It's going for another month up there. It's an um, it's an adaptation of a 1970s Dario Fo Italian political farce about the death of capitalism. Lol. <laughs> and um, and I tried to reframe it 
it to be like a feminist work so the women are the central characters and Helen Thompson is the lead and I felt going into it, I was in rehearsals for the first two weeks of January going, I've never done anything like this before, like stage, you know. Yeah. I was, it felt really good to be in a new space. And so before it started, I kind of went, you know what, this might not work and that's okay. Like I kind of surrendered to the fact that it might not be like a boffo smash. And I thought, well, I'm really brave for like putting myself in a new genre and trying something. So thankfully it did work. But, um, but yeah, STC, it was so intense. It's a big set. Done a lot of crying. It's great. <laughs> Is it going to come here? I hope so. I don't know. I have no idea how the kind of MTC, STC thing works. I think if it's like a huge moneymaker, like it'll go to Melbourne, but I don't know. The death of capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, the irony in the opera house as well. Yeah, down with the capitalist pigs opera house. Yeah. All, you, all you need to do is play to, play to our sort of vanity, if you say, <laughs> written by Melbourne's own Mary Carter. Yeah. yeah. That's the way. Oh, that'll do it. That'll take us home. Anyway, better off said, eulogies for the living and the dead is on at the Spiegel tent, 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood this Sunday. Starting doors open at 2:30, goes from 2:30 to uh, five. Two-hour show, three o'clock start. Pricing is 39 dollars. It's going to be an excellent lineup. Murray Cardi, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, friends. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Uh, you might have seen this yesterday. I was on the ABC. Um, website, but there was it's just a really nice story about a um, a couple. Um, this woman, Glenda, uh, had was given a friendship ring by her um, then well now husband Glenda. Yeah, beautiful name. Glenda. Um, by it was given, a ring given to her by a teenage sweetheart Ooh. in back in 1974, um, and it was a. They're still together now, um, and it, he said that it was just this ring. That it was it was like a, a will you will you go with me? Oh, will you be me? my girl? Yeah. Um, and then they went and got the ring engraved, and then do you want to go up to the woods and go necking? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you made that sound creepy. <laughs> I think it was the woods. That's where I'm going wrong. <laughs> Do a bit of necking. Uh, Do you know what my parents used to call it? Necking um, is worse than kissing. Necking sounds like vampire. Vamp- yeah, it's knocking, but you vampire. know what else is worse than that? Suck face. Okay, oh. yeah. Yeah. It's no from, one says suck face. Yes, they do. No. They do. Go, if you've seen On Golden Pond. Past midnight and <laughs> suck some face. Yeah. It, it, Dad would always, because it was from the movie, it's from On, on Golden Pond. What's On Golden Pond? It's uh, a, yeah. Do you know it? Yeah, um, it was Peter Fonda. I think Fon- so. Yeah, Peter yeah, 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 and, yeah. Um, one of the Hepburns. And that's as much as we know. Yeah. <laughs> but we, that's, it, it was a movie that we would watch quite a bit. And so um, Dad, whenever we went out, we'd come back home and Dad would always ask, did you suck face? And oh. we would give no information. Dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm sure this couple suck face. Um, <laughs> and they, so they had this ring, but she lost it. Uh, and it has turned up. Um, many, many years later, 40-something, What? how many, I don't know what year, um, but it was found by a guy that was um, had a metal detector and he um, he found it and then um, was going to keep it and saw that it had, there was some um, engraving on the inside and put it out on, on the socials and lo and behold. Oh, my God, social media. Yeah. With the goods. Yeah. Also, it's very helpful that there was an engraving on the inside of the rings. Did it say... The address or something, yeah. or was it? Um, or do you, 
do you want to suck face? N- yeah, I think it was that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was exactly that. Yeah. I, I uh, you know, I say uh, my sister stole, well, I'm going to say she stole a ring of mine. Acquired. Many years, <laughs> acquired a ring of mine. So when I lived in Sydney for a while, Dad uh, was moving out of our of our childhood home and uh, he said everyone has to come back and get their shit out, basically. And so I went, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. So I came back and uh, everyone had kind of gone into bedrooms and grabbed anything that was stored, left stored there, your box. You know, there's all those see-through boxes that you stuff stuff oh, in. I mean, you yes. just leave at your parents' house. Your, your neighbours must have thought you were looting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit like that. And, I, and I'd and i left, I just left, when I'd gone to Sydney, I just left my bedside drawers and stuff full because I got a job really fast and had to be in Sydney within a week and then mm. didn't come back for four years. And I was going through all my stuff and I realised that some of this jewellery that I thought I had had gone missing uh, and I remember saying to my sister at the time, I'm like, have you seen any of my jewellery or anything? She said, no, I don't know what you're talking about, whatever. <laughs> and uh, and I just was like, well, maybe I've lost it. Who knows where it's gone? Four years later, my sister was in hospital and I went to visit her in hospital and I sat down on the bed next to her and we're having a chat and I looked down at her hand and I saw this ring <laughs> and I went, oh, that is a beautiful ring. Where did you get that? And she goes... You know, I have no idea. It just <laughs> appeared in my stuff and I cannot remember for the life of me where I got it. I went, you know where you got that? For my drawer yeah. four years ago. And I've been looking for that ring for four years. See, that was your opportunity to press the button, get the nurse to come in and say, I'm sorry, my sister's in a fair degree of pain. She's going to need some more morphine. Yeah. <laughs> She's drugged out and then you can acquire it back. Yeah. The good thing was she believed, She went, oh, really? She goes, I'm so sorry. I don't know how that ended up with me. Oh. And took it off and gave it back to me. Avoided drugging it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't have to get, get, pump her full of morphine. But it was four years of me going, what an idiot, this really precious ring that I'd been, would, had kind of been a bit of an, a family heirloom that I, I was like, I must have lost it somewhere. And there it was. And she just went, oh, yeah, and she's, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, but had, had genuinely forgotten by the time I... Discover, rediscovered it so or anything. Funny. Had you just forgotten the, how she'd acquired it? The holding up of the hand. I know this is radio, but she was holding up her hand and looking at the ring going, I don't know. Yeah, she's just appeared out, out of nowhere. out of nowhere. I'll take your uh, four years. So thieving siblings, that's where <laughs> yeah. your stuff is. <laughs> I'm going to do that every time. If I ever want to steal something and then if I get caught, I just use it. I don't know. It just appeared out of nowhere. I'll take you four years and I'll raise you six years. Oh, yeah. Back in the day um, when I used to live in a little town called Juroa, um, we lost cosmic creatures for six years. Who's cosmic creatures? Ah, yes, What's... well, cosmic creatures was our, our black cat. <gasps> and we were, six years? We were settled in, in, in Charmin Avenue in, in Juroa and one day cosmic wasn't there. And then two weeks went by. Three weeks went by. And we thought, oh, well, gee, this is uh, this is the bush. Maybe she's been bitten by a snake, run over by a dickhead yeah. next door neighbour. Um, and basically, into the midst of time, just sort of moved on from Cosmic. And then one day... Um, did you replace Cosmic? Yeah, we did. I can't remember with whom. But uh, so we... we it makes me so sad. Coming Co- back from, Cosmic was replaced. Coming back from school one day... And there's Cosmic in the driveway, just laying no. in the middle of the driveway like she always did. But she had changed, man. She had changed. I don't know where she'd been. Are you sure it was her? Absolutely, positively, it was her. Same cat, same fur, <gasps> same same attitude, but she had changed. She'd 
gone like if she was like a mafiosa, you would say she's gone. She went to school for six years. Oh, oh came back she, went to the she was she was a main cat I by the time who she got had back. A, like obviously she was living with someone else. Too. Yeah, she must have been living with someone else and just decided she was jack of it and decided to come back to those other buffoons. And was she wow. welcomed? Was she welcomed in with she was wel- open arms? She was welcomed back with open arms, but you couldn't really pick her up anymore. Because oh. she would scratch your eyeballs out. So what so did you do with her? We just and what did the other family do with her to make her not want to get picked up? We just kept um, feed, feeding her, giving her milk, treating her like yeah. she was the family cat. But I love this little tough nut that turns up and is like yeah. just demanding. Yeah, it went away as you know, an innocent little um, princess, and comes back, you know, Aww. like um, she's just been on the set of Neighbours for six years. <laughs> I'm sorry, prisoner. When you say neighbours, what do I not know about neighbours? Those, those tough bastards on uh, Ramsey Street. Oh yeah. my God, that's where she been. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. It is time for our food interlude. And Michael is here to talk about the loveliness of ugly vegetables. Yes. Where do we start? Well, where do we start? And like you know, and, and let me tell you, we're probably going to go down another rabbit hole with this one because it's uh, you know with with the uh, you know the the idea of ugly vegetables is using produce that um, is too ugly, either small or mm. you know misshapen or it's got blemishes or stuff. Um, buying that that won't be used by the supermarket, so it's sort of like it's not the right you know it's not the right look for supermarkets. They don't generally like that, and so. <laughs> There's a movement to get that out into the shop. So basically, it's sort of like, you know, the ugly vegetables are like the rescue dogs of the food world. Aww. So, you know, it's kind of like quite a quite a cute story. And, you know, it's sort of like, oh, isn't that great? We can use these vegetables that otherwise would have been rejected. And, you know, they're perfectly good. And there's there's some really good – there's some really good um, – um, movements around getting them to um, in, into restaurants. You know, there's sort of places that you can buy boxes of these things, and sort of there's even some of the bigger supermarkets are sort of dedicating a bit of space to ugly vegetables and everything. But the thing is that it's sort of like when you start looking at the, and that's all, all all a good thing. But it's sort of like it's hiding behind this. Um, there's like a big food waste problem that, that this is yeah. one part of. Do we have yeah. any sort of idea of what sort of how how to quantify how much food is actually wasted because of appearance? Glad glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> so look at generally um, worldwide um, farmers worldwide are growing um, enough food for 10 billion people. Jeez. And um, the current world population is around 7.5 billion. So there's this sort of like the what's happened with this, it's sort of like looking at the industrial food system more than anything. So we're kind of growing more than we need. But, at the, you know, at the same time, you've got 800 million people a day going without food. Yeah. So wow. there's this sort of, you know, there, and like, you know, and Australia is particularly wasteful. Um, they're looking at like the, the figure that I've got at the moment. There's lots of different ways of quantifying it, but they're saying it's approximately wasting three thousand eight hundred dollars worth of food per household. How come we're per bad? Year. I think we live in a society where you know because we grow a lot of food, and mm. so there's a lot available. So and it's and it's reasonably cheap compared to the rest of the world. Like you know, I've got my daughters in China, at the, in uh, Japan at the moment, and sort of like talking about the fresh produce over there, including things like you know, she said, saw a, a rock melon in a uh, supermarket. 
supermarket the other day that was going for around $350. (gasps) It's beautiful. She took a photo of it. Looks, it was it was perfect. How much she charge you for that? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's sort of like that's that's the thing with the yeah. So there's a lot of wastage in the yeah. food, and it's and it's sort of part of the whole thing of the industrial food system. Yeah. Um, so that you know people are growing lots, and that sort of and wastage is built in. So they yeah. sort of they look at about you know a third of the crops. Uh, not used at all, so that's sort of like they're going to be wasted. It's either it's either spoilage, which happens in the home, or it's um, wastage in the in the um, in the um, manufacturing of it, like the processing of it and stuff. And then the other the, a third of it, a lot of the time, it's not even picked because it's not economically viable to take it out of the ground and get it to people. Wow. So there's all this food lying around that's not being used. And this is one of the things that the ugly vegetables are trying to address, but it's quite a small part of it. So there's sort of other things. I don't know. Is, oh, oh, no, I, I was just going to say, is there a way of, is it kind of a movement as well then to producing less, to somehow changing things so that farmers are producing still on a mass scale but just producing less? Or is that... It's Not really hard approach. to, like, you know, we have to make, I think as consumers, we have to make decisions to sort of start looking for smaller producers. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of like, you know, sort of looking for, for ways that we're not sort of supporting that. But it's really, really difficult because yeah. it's like there's a lot, like a lot of the produce, there's no, there's no other way to get it than with these mass production. But it's all tied into because it's like it's because it's, you know, big ag mm. is, you mm. know, a thing. And so that's just it's not just food. It's sort of like that's also the chemical industry because it's all the pesticides and the fertilizers that are needed to grow food on that scale. So it's sort of it's quite a large problem in that way so supermarkets in in recent years have gone some way to trying to educate or or point out to consumers like where their food is is coming from yes um it would seem to me that that there's still a long way to go with that so if we had a better idea of exactly where our food is coming from how it is produced then that might add to a little bit of mindfulness around the way we consume it. Yeah, I think it's a that's a good it's a it is a good um, measure. I think that sort of like you know when because you know I, I know when I shop if I see somewhere where I'm if I'm looking to buy garlic and I see it's coming from Mexico I don't buy it. Yeah, you know I kind of I start you know you're just kind of starting yeah. to think it like at least keep it. A, within the country mm. so it hasn't travelled all that distance and yeah. stuff. And everything else is like... I mean, we're so used to having our actual, you know, boxes on the shelves labelled where it's made now yes. as well. Yeah, so yeah, not yeah. knowing where our... I was just wondering too, you might not know the answer to this, but if I go to the fruiterer, so sometimes I go to the fruiterer because uh, I like to support the businesses in our area, it's cheaper to get produce there, so I won't go to the supermarket. Sometimes I go to the supermarket because it's late and that's what yes. I do. But is there a difference to where they're getting their fruit and veg from or are they all coming from the same place? No, there are. There's sort of like, you know, there's there's wholesalers so that you can go there, but within those wholesalers there's different ways. Like there's there's people, there's smaller growers like amongst the – it's, yeah, right. you know, they're mo- mainly the bigger growers, but, um, you know, there's a lot of people that, that source, you know, particular material. Like, you know, with, within the restaurant um, industry, a lot of people are now sourcing directly from farms mm. and stuff like that. So they're sort of supporting these smaller producers, which is sort of, you know, less chemicals and, you know, or, and giving those farmers um, a better margin on their on their um, on their profits, you know, it's sort of like on their crops. Yeah, so. who's making the biggest profit out of this? Is it like the supermarkets that are selling the ugly vegetables, or are they passing that on to the farmers? Or yeah, I I don't know particularly. It's sort of like you know the you know my cynicism would kick in there, but mm. I would, wouldn't know exactly the answer to that. But it's sort of like you know there, there is there is a sort of a cynicism around the ugly vegetable thing, but it is at the basis there's something really good to it because it's yeah. like mm. it gives small farmers a chance to recoup 
on some of the vegetables that they wouldn't be able to sell otherwise. So, you know, it's sort of like if people are kind of looking for those ones, it it, um, it increases the very small margins that they have on profit do, anyway. Do you, do you think our hand's going to have to be forced on this anyway as we continue down climb, the climate, you know, change well, track? You well, know, this is, we're yeah. drying up, towns are running out of water, some of our agricultural farming areas are, are struggling with water as it is. Our hand's got to probably be forced on this anyway. Yeah, well, this is the thing. And, like, that, this is where, where there's some, some good news stuff coming in on this because there's some measures that are sort of being done. Like the CSIRO are doing some really good work on using food wastage. So, for example, they're looking at apples mm-hmm. and about a third of apple, only a third of apples go into supermarkets, like of, of the whole crop. Only a third of them are deemed to be good enough for eating apples. So you've got all this other stuff. They can put a whole bunch of that into juicing. So all the other uglier mm. ones can go into juicing. But even in that, a third of the biomass is, mm, is wasted. And it's like, and the biomass has got all the good stuff in it. Yeah. It's all the pulp and everything like that. So the CSIRO are developing ways of using that. So they've, they've developed ways of sort of dehydrating and making into pellets and into powders and stuff so that you can put them into um, smoothies and into breakfast cereals oh. and into baking and stuff like that. And they don't lose any of they've, they're testing it so they don't use, lose any of the nutritional value. So that's kind of a it's like one of those good things that they're doing, you know, science wise. Is is there is there a particular country or place in the world that does this very well? Um, I think they're all like, you know, Europe generally mm. is really good at not wasting food, but I think that's a traditional sort of more a cultural thing where, you know, it's sort of like you would never waste a chicken, for example, that had been laying mm. eggs. Like a lot of the time our chickens are composted, mm. the, the, the egg layers, whereas in, you know, in Europe they would always be used, you know, in a, in a slow cooking and stuff like that. So I think that's better. Mm. Um, America is actually sort of, even though it's very wasteful, is actually doing some really good things in this way. They're just There's a, um, a, a molecular biologist called Catherine Sizoff who's just um, made this discovery. She's a microbiologist and she um, has worked out to find out the, the time when fruit is ripening. She's got a test. It's like a diabetes test for fruit. And it, when fruit starts to ripen, it spikes. There's an enzyme in it that spikes. And that means it's going to um, right. that, that it's going to ripen. So they can get the food out of the depots quicker. Tippy-top. It's like this stuff is going first, so let's get it out. Where it, So it's already saving like millions of dollars a year in spoilage because they're getting the fruit to the, to the um, consumer before it spoils in the warehouse. So there are, you know, there there are some good news in amongst all the, uh, you know, the terrible thoughts of waste. And- yeah. So is this going to, um, just before we let you go, is this going to be a consumer-driven thing or a sector-driven thing, you think? I think it's going to be a little bit of both, but I think consumers definitely need to, you know, step up and kind of just, just be a little bit aware. It's not that hard, mm. really, to sort of like, you know, it's just sort of a little bit of a search, on, you know, on the internet to find out where you can get the ugly vegetables or, you know, that sort of stuff. It's uh, Well, the wonderful Triple R audience will rise up to the occasion. They're and, probably uh, all nodding. Probably yeah, I nodding. Do that. I probably do that. Yeah. They're probably eating an ugly apple as we speak. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael, for coming in. No worries. Thanks. Triple R. That music. <laughs> it's pretty intense, isn't it? It's so funny no. that it hasn't changed. Like it's, it's changed in like five years. Yeah, but it's good because it just—I love it. It's okay. film review time, <laughs> and the deadly Simone isn't here to give us a film review <laughs> of. Honey boy. Yes, I am. I've never been called deadly before. It feels pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's good because it's true. Thanks, God. Uh, Honey boy uh, is the new Shia LaBeouf film that he um, drafted while in rehab. 
and was directed by an Israeli-American filmmaker called Alma Harel. Have you guys... Uh, it's kind of weird to ask, have you heard anything about Honey Boy? Have you heard anything about like the downward spiral of Shia LaBeouf? And yes, his and he's a very... Very, he was a very intense dude anyway. Yeah, and that um, I think that was one of his strengths as, a, as an actor is that yeah. you know that intensity comes through in all his performances. Yeah, um, does it come through in this? One hundred percent. This film is really interesting because it is an end point to what has been a sort of um, gossip magazine narrative about the life and times of Shia LaBeouf. It is a film about his relationship with his father when he was a young boy. Um, the characters in the film, Otis is a young child star, not called Shire. Otis is a young, well, he's a young working actor anyway, but he's living in a kind of uh, decrepit motel room with his recovering alcoholic uh, veteran father who is paid to be his chaperone on set and who, with whom he has a extremely tense uh, relationship that is not... Um, abusive in the I mean it's absolutely abusive but it's not abusive in uh, these kind of direct violent overtones it's more about this constant kind of uh, simmering tension need for the father to kind of have a, an emotional dominance over his son and a sense of possession and the son who's an incredibly instinctively intelligent kid trying to appease him manage him and draw a sense of love out of him and connection from him so the film starts off in the most amazing way with a shot of um, a guy called Lucas Hedges plays the, the adult Otis and he's um, strapped into a harness and he there's, you see uh, a stunt being performed on the set of a Transformers-like film and then it goes into this amazing kind of montage of the actor in film scenes and they're moving into his trailer and you basically see this like manic uh, evolution of his own addiction and alcohol problems and sex problems that culminate in this fairly spectacular and terrible crash and then he finds finds himself in court-ordered rehab where he resists uh, a diagnosis of PTSD because Mm -hmm. Otis is like, what what am I traumatised by? And then goes through a process of a kind of uh, a very, it's like an embodiment therapy where he basically has to like stay in his body and stay in the room but then kind of talk about what his life was like and what his childhood was like. And then while we're kind of walking through that journey with Lucas of him kind of resisting rehab and eventually kind of succumbing to it, uh, we start drifting through the memories of his childhood that Otis had with his dad. Uh, which include his father. So Otis has got a bigger brother, like Big Brothers of America, that program where you get, you know, assigned a... Right, yep. And his father's kind of aggressive altercation with him, this sort of intimate relationship that he develops with this young prostitute who lives across the road, played by FKA Twigs. Um, Very sins of him on set. And it's, it's really all about navigating this forceful charismatic ego of his father who's a former rodeo clown and so in parts this incredible has absolute faith that his son is going to be a star is really focused on developing him as a creative talent but in this very domineering controlling suffocating way um all of which or most of which kind of takes place in the confines of this tiny little hotel room that they share with two single beds so there's there's a lot going on that does it work does he pull it off? Beautifully. There is so much in this film that works. Mm. And I think it's because there is all these like individual vast talents that just 
they just meet each other perfectly, right? So um, Alma Harrell, who hasn't made a feature before this, she's made um, she made a Segura Ross film clip back oh. in 2012, and she made a documentary called Bombay Beach, which was set on Salt and Sea. She's phenomenal. She's just so confident with um, a camera that kind of moves through dream and reality sequences and has to deal with some like really quite intense performances and two-hander scenes all the time and she's just always so hard to pull off it's really she's she's amazing she's done an incredible job um Shia LaBeouf's screenwriting is beautiful and all of the performances are amazing so the guy who plays the adult Shia LaBeouf in recovery um Lucas Hedges who he's just been in everything he was a guy from like Boy Erased anyway and he's just you'd recognize him he's like basically another kind of Shia LaBeouf grew up in Hollywood character but he's incredibly good as this angry resistant um addict uh and then the kid who plays Otis knows you but he's from a quiet place he's just one of those preternaturally mature conscious kids mm. uh, and it's actually kind of disturbing how often in scenes where he has this raging father he actually always has a kind of emotional upper hand and perspective you can see him navigating his father so well and in a role that's kind of heartbreaking because it's still him Shia LaBeouf plays his own dad that's right Greek myth mythology or Great something it's like just been going back to playing the father so the end this consuming is, the father in order to process the father yeah is it totally mm-hmm. based on his life like how do we know how how true to life it is or it seems to be very yeah. close to his life it 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 follows very closely the known facts about Charlotte Booth's life but he's given the characters fictional yeah, names right um but you know more yes. or less. <laughs> I mean, definitely he had a father who was an addict. The director, Alma, also had a father who was an addict. I don't know whether or not Shia Lewis' dad was a rodeo clown, but <laughs> in the way that he and the director talk about the film, it is very much him exercising his demons. Um, Funny we could all do that. I know. Right? But, you know, it's 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 a weird thing because Shia Lewis has got this extraordinarily terrible kind of tacky history mm. in the tabloids, right? He plagiarises people's films and he goes on drunken rants and he hires skywriters to... Mock the people whose films his his work he's plagiarized. That was that was pretty far he's, out. He's <laughs> nuts, and he's he has been nuts, and perhaps that was all just symptomatic of the addiction that he himself was experiencing. But he's been this kind of high velocity, intense f up for such a long time, and you know it's so tidy and neat. it would be so tidy and neat if this film after he went into rehab and recovered from his addiction this is the film that kind of brought him back into the fold and made us all love and respect him but and i you know i'd kind of be grudging in that project if i hadn't seen the film before i really read back the history of everything that he's yeah, done yeah the film is actually just a really great film and if it does actually bring him back into the fold and revive his career and make people give people a renewed respect for him it's absolutely deserved because it's a beautiful film so have we have we seen him on the on the promotional circuit for this film do we know how he's traveling I read a moment? couple of interviews yeah. um, which didn't get a huge amount away um the director's kind of been on the front foot I haven't seen him being filmed but all the publicity photos he just looks very he looks very um <laughs> Tidily presented and sombre-faced. Yeah. Is he um, being accepted? Do you think he has been accepted into the back into the Hollywood fold now? Is this the kind of thing that Hollywood goes, okay, mate, you're forgiven? I do a scan of reviews before I come in just yeah. to see, like, where I sit in the... <laughs> 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 there is, but that people are just very, very, very warm ah. um, without kind of snideness. Yep. 
or backhandedness about where it's coming from. So, is um, the film, so I reckon, yeah, he's... Is the film streaming or screening? It is screening. Right, it okay. is a It is a cinema experience, which I think it's limited, but it's not like limited to one cinema. Well, it's in the outhouses. <laughs> <laughs> the film is called Honey Boy. It sounds absolutely fascinating and very good review. I want to go and see it. Thank you. <laughs> um, you've painted the picture beautifully, Simone. Thank you so much for coming in. You're very welcome. Triple R. Seahorses. Cut me off. <laughs> Sorry. I gave, gave Daniel a thumbs up and I forgot the animal I've theme lost, still to play. I've lost all the energy now. Uh, I was going to put so much into that. Seahorses are the uh, beautiful but strange bastards of the deep. <laughs> Here to talk about them is Ricky Lee. He looks like every other Ricky Lee I've ever met in my life. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, are you apologise? Yeah. Full, full disclosure, I didn't notice there was a new Daniel when I first walked in. I'm so sorry. You're all right. Uh, thanks for having me. Good. Such thanks. a pleasure. This is going to be, well, it's possibly your last. No. So this will be my second your last. second last yeah. ever feature creature. So I'm so happy you've chosen seahorses for this moment. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, I went I went diving on Sunday. It was my friend Tiff's birthday. She's at the museum as well. And she's a fish expert. So we went for a dive at St. Leonard's Pier, um, which is just in the bay, on the southern side of the bay on the west side. And we, yeah, we spent about an hour in the water. We saw so much. One of those things that we saw a lot of were the seahorses, but just a list of another, quite a few other things, because I don't think people realise how great the bay is for marine life as well. You can just, I've heard that. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. So it's just all the pylons under the pier were just covered in these really beautiful established coral um, sponge gardens, um, lots oh. of big sea squirts, lots of bryozoans, um, crabs, bivalves, um, we saw lots of pipefish, we saw toadfish, um, we saw seahorses, sea like I said, fiddler rays, little cool. baby stingrays, and this big white jellyfish. It was really cool. Are you just wearing snorkels and a weddy? No, we, we did proper scuba diving. Oh. So it's because it's so shallow, you can snorkel there. It's only three metres deep, but just diving, I guess, allows you to just get a little bit lower, especially to see the seahorses, which tend to just um, hold on to little bits and pieces around the bottom near the edge of the seagrass bed. So, But you can definitely still snorkel there and see all this stuff. So the health, the, the health of the bay is pretty good? Yeah. Or is it getting better? Or is it... uh, I probably couldn't comment on whether it's getting better, but at the moment it's it's quite, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And obviously there's those larger scale issues like climate change and global mm. warming, which you can't, you know, locally you can't fix. So there's always those. But certainly in the southern part of the bay where there's not as much pollution from the city, that's the really the best place to go to see marine life. Okay. Ooh, tell us about seahorses. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. We brought you in to talk about seahorses. Okay. Come on. So the one I'm, that I saw and the one I'll talk about most is the big belly seahorse. Um, so it's the largest seahorse in the world. So it's up to 35 centimetres and it's um, present in Australia and in, in New Zealand. Um, they're really cute. Um, they're bright yellow, they've got these big bellies. People often think, oh, you know, it's a pregnant male, but the females also have that big belly. Um, it's just a slightly different shape. Um, so these, yeah, like I said, they live off the coast of Southern Australia and New Zealand. Um, they mainly are found around algae, seagrasses and rocky reefs in shallow water. Um, and they really like man-made um, uh, uh, substances, so like uh, piers and all that sort of thing. So they, right. they like to have something to hold on to with their tail. Um so they're usually found less than 50 metres deep, but they've been found much deeper than that. And 
They are currently least concerned, so they're doing quite well in terms of their populations, but they are CITES listed because they are susceptible to trade, illegal trade. So they're doing quite well. So if you look at these seahorses, they've got a really long snout, um, kind of like a hose tube, and they've got that big belly and that big long coiled tail. Um, and they swim using the dorsal fin, fin, which is kind of at the top of their head with a vertical stance, which is really, really weird. They're mo- most closely related to pipefish and sea dragons, which sea dragons are more similar, but they have those big um, weedy appendages that make them really yeah. easy to camouflage. Um, but the pipefish swim um, horizontally like most fish would as well. Um, but, the, yeah, the seahorses and the sea dragons swim vertically. So swimming isn't their strong suit. Yeah. They tend to hold on to something with their tail and then they just sit and wait for passing little crustaceans to swim by and they don't have any teeth, so they just suck them up like a oh. vacuum. <laughs> yeah. Are they, are, they, are they easy for, like, other fish just to pick off? They sound like they're pretty vulnerable. Yeah, they. I mean, they, they would be in that aspect. They have that camouflage. Um, like I said earlier, and they're probably, yeah, not, I don't think they're predated on too badly by other animals. There are other probably more tasty fish. They, so can we talk, I mean, I might be skipping ahead here, no. but I feel like a lot of people listening would have seen those horrifying videos of a seahorse spurting little seahorses out yeah. of its stomach. What's going on there? So the breeding in these animals are really, really cool because the male is the one that's pregnant. Um, so, I'll so when the male says just like for the first Arnie. time, we're having a baby, <laughs> yeah. he's actually being accurate for once. He actually yeah. is, yeah. <laughs> so I'll talk you through their breeding process because it's quite cute. Um, so they first they have this sort of court, courtship with each other. So they have these bright colour changes and they do these postural displays. Um, so the male will dilate. It's So he has... He, it's not pregnant in the sense that he has a pouch. A brood pouch. A brood pouch, yes. And he, he inflates this to kind of show it off to the female. And then at the same time, he Such flashes. Such a typical male. Typical, <laughs> yeah. And then it, um, well, he lightens his colours, his whites and yellows, to make them a little bit brighter. And then he repeatedly approaches the female with his head tucked down and his dorsal fins rapidly fluttering, so showing off Um, And the female, so if she's not receptive, she'll just go away and look for another male. But if she is keen, she reciprocates with her own colour changes and her head tucking. She does that brightening of the yellows and the whites. And then what happens is they start like swimming together, which is really cute. They sometimes, you know, twirl their little tails together and they'll do this every morning, which enforces their pair bond. Um, so they're not monogamous in not monogamous, ter- yeah right. in terms of that, but they do have these sort of pairs um, together. So then the male, when the, when the female's ready to breed, the male tries to get the female to swim up towards the surface with him by pointing his snout up, and then the female also puts her snout up, and they go up together. Oh, oh, sounds lovely. I know. <laughs> Disgusting, but it's cute. It's cute. Then this is the gross bit. Oh. So then it's a roller coaster. So then the female faces the male, and she's slightly above, and then she presses the base of her abdomen against the male's pouch, and she squirts her eggs through the opening of his pouch using this thing called an ovipositor, which is like a penis equivalent protrusion of from the bottom of her wow. torso. Yeah, which is pretty cool. And then. So she puts her eggs into the pouch. Um, the male brood pouch has 
walls that provide maximum surface area so that embryo every embryo can embed into the soft tissue and then it's fertilized in that like during that process of right. transfer and then it's then he has them in his pouch until they're ready to be born which is those videos that you've seen so this species well, I want to make it clear I haven't seen those videos well, the you- members of the panel have been <laughs> YouTubing them that's your first bit of homework <laughs> after this is to go Google it because it's it's pretty cool um, because they're fully formed, tiny, independent seahorses, <laughs> so they're really, really cute. Um, but the male seahorse, the big belly seahorse, can brood three hundred to seven hundred young at a time, which is wow. a lot of baby seahorses. Yeah. So the, in I guess with fish, a lot of fish they they do um, the numbers game, so they don't put as much energy into each particular offspring. Like we put in so much energy to just having one baby, we put a lot of care into it. Whereas they're just like numbers out there they're not all going to survive law of averages we'll see how we go exactly uh so yeah and then it's pretty full-on because uh the female has already got her eggs ready to go once he gives birth and so they can just keep mating over and over again so they can do like four four sessions in one summer and they can breed all year round do do that many baby seahorses die that they they need to breed that much yeah so they're so when they're so young they're um, I guess they're easier to pick off by other smaller animals and like turtles, I suppose. Like, um, you yeah, know, they, they lay so many eggs. Yeah, that, yeah. That, you know, they have to, you know, lose twenty to to you know breed two, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah. I what think is the right like, percentage? The survival well, rate of yeah. seahorses. I'm not sure to be honest, but I, I imagine it's just they keep low. going at it. It's not just yeah. like having a lot of babies. It's like we're having a lot of babies, and then we're doing it again and yeah. again and again. Yeah. yeah. And it's I guess that evolutionary, yeah, that's what's been worked for them and that's what's got them to this point. So I guess they just keep doing that. But, yeah, the evolution of seahorses is quite interesting. They found that um, in 2016 they sequenced an entire genome of seahorse, which is a, a different species but same genus as the big-bellied seahorse, and they found that it has a higher rate of evolution than any, any other species of bony fish in the planet. And that might explain some of its really weird traits because it is able to yeah. mutate so quickly. Um and yeah, so they've got these, ge- they're missing genes that produce teeth. So that's why they don't have teeth. They've got these big suckers. And they also are missing genes that are responsible for, so the same gene that we've got that produces our hind legs or our legs. Oh. And that's present in most vertebrates. So they don't actually have pectoral fins on the side, which is what makes their belly, big belly, so prominent. So right. there's a few interesting parts of their genes. Um, yeah. And, also, they've yeah they miss a lot of these smelling genes, which is why they have those big eyes. We think that they might rely on that more than their um, olfactory senses. So yeah, they're pretty unusual. Wow, amazing little critters. <clears throat> yeah, are they, are they good eating? Yes, they're very efficient and they can just <laughs> suck them right up. So they can actually eat a lot. And yeah, they mainly eat small crustaceans, um, little shrimp and crabs. And he means is it okay to eat? <laughs> he mean, can you eat seed? No. I, I know. <clears throat> Don't ask her that. <laughs> I always just, say just, no. Just a question. Just a question. Uh, <laughs> well, just quickly. Oh, sorry, Cookie. Sorry. You just mentioned again where you went snorkeling. Where Saint went- Leonard's Pier. There you go. And yes. it was so. It was packed. There was lots of people snorkeling. Actually, we, one of my friends was snorkeling, and she saw nudibranchs, and I didn't see nudibranchs. So maybe snorkeling is actually even better. Well, mm. if you want to bail up a colleague today and tell them all about seahorses, <laughs> you are now equipped to do so. Thanks to Ricky Lee. Thank you for coming in and telling us all about the little seahorses. Thanks for having me. Triple. Ah. I want to chat. 
Well, I've, I, I'm quite a light sleeper, okay? Mm. So I, I don't – I'm not a very good sleeper. I feel, no, really, that's a hard thing to live with. Oh, look, I feel like it's pretty common these days. Do you mm. sleep soundly? Uh, it depends. This job really yeah. messes with your sleep patterns and stuff. So sometimes you have moments where you sleep like a log and other yeah. times you – brain's a bit wiry because you know you've got to get up early of did course. you how did you go last night how did not you get up? well no <laughs> like I actually had a, a good sleep but uh like I feel rested so yeah. that's something good but yeah of course I just am like I'm gonna sleep through just because I think that that is the worst feeling ever when your phone goes off yes and you're like hey someone says hey you're on your way you're like ah, ah. oh god I feel my heart rate went up just think, saying it that's <laughs> the thing I've been paranoid about the most these last couple of weeks oh, yes. really? is the the alarm not going off and all of a sudden it's 5:55 and I'm Getting out of bed. Yeah. And so, uh, um, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a little bit late. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's horrible. It's a horrible feeling. Um, but, yeah, no, so to assist my sleeping, oh, I've been trying to unwind. And so I'm trying to um, use, like, guided meditation mm-hmm. to help me sleep. Um, but I am finding it like it is such a process to find, and I've just gone, I should probably have just, it's pretty straightforward. I probably should have just asked people for some recommendations for, you know, a meditation app or whatever, but I'm always, it's always an afterthought. I'm like, so I go to YouTube and I'm just like guided meditation and just punch it in and just listen to whatever comes in. It's so risky. It is so risky. (laughs) It is a very fine line between like being so relaxed that they they gently guide you to sleep or absolutely yeah. irritate you and I piss you, you off. I want you now to put your chakra yeah. in the upright position. In the upright Exactly. <laughs> it's so it's it is honestly like you learn a lot about not learn yeah, your preferences. It's kinda like dating, you know, when you <laughs> so, so, <laughs> You're discovering so did, more about yourself. I am yeah. I'm like next. Like Does 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 the accent matter to you? Does it have to be an American accent, Good Australian question. accent? Yeah. British I, I, I think I have landed – excellent question, Daniel. I think I have landed on um, a British accent. Right. Oh, you're saying – Definitely. Yeah. All right. So, like, I want you now yeah. to get your chakra and put it in the downright position. All right, lovey. <laughs> I'm so no. – I'm apologising now to all of our, our British listeners for I'm what s- has just occurred. You're such a geezer. <laughs> you're such a geezer. <laughs> Sorry about that too. Yeah, actually, there is, there is one, um, like, meditation – channel or whatever um called the honest guys which i like right and i think i prefer where possible like a female voice mm-hmm. yeah. but i think that the, the the british accent is definitely preferable just but, because there's kind of like a bit of a, a natural authority about it us being sort of convicts and all oh yeah of course you know, exactly just you're just like that, oh, you know, ah here we go. yes the old country yes, tell me what to do yeah, yeah more comfortable with that <laughs> but it is it's so funny it is such a fine line like i think if the, the language starts to get too colourful like that if they're like now um I think I was listening to one the other night and it was really nice like I love the music like I love a wind flute is that oh, even a thing oh yeah a, a pan pipe a, a what a pan pipe yeah sure I think a wind uh, I mean, a, a wind flute? Did a I, make that? I don't know it sounds like it kind of made it up but I'm not going to back it because I don't know fan. I hate pan pipe text pan in pi- if you love the wind flute <laughs> <laughs> pan pipes freak me out so much okay I have like a fear there's a guy in the city somewhere that dresses 
ends up as a, a what do you call it? Well, you half a horse, half man, like well, centaur. It very yeah. reasonable that you would be freaked right, out okay. from that story. Yeah, so pan there's flute, a, there's a pan guy, flute. There's pan pipe. It's a freaking pan pipe. Pan pipe. Oh, so much for meditation. Let's I know. Hear. Hang on, hang on. Let's Here's, hear it. Let's hear it. Hang on. This is here we go. Pan. This is pan pipe moods. Endless love. Well, that's clearly a piano. So a I piano. don't know when the pan pipe comes in. Give it some time. Yes, this? that's what I love. Yeah, like the um, old Nescafe ads. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So this takes oh God, me this to like, like the rolling hills of Ireland. Yeah. It, it truly does it. D- d- it does. Right. Yeah, I get that. But have you seen the centaur man who plays the pan pipes in no. the city? <laughs> so have yeah, I seen I'm the centaur like, man yeah. who plays the pan pipes in the city? Yeah. No, I haven't. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> he's painted all white. Okay, now I just sound like I've imagined this. But he's, yeah. he's painted all white and he's got a centaur and he's got he's got horns and he plays pan. Okay, right. No, okay. not at all. But imagine that playing this. <laughs> Can I have half a kilo while you're on? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Now I don't want to disrespect panpipes, but they 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 leave me. I think that when we were kids, panpipes there was a big panpipe stage, and the, the teachers on days that were hot would say lie down and relax in the classroom. They'd always put on panpipe music. Really, it was kind of in in the nineties. Yeah, I will. I love them. Well, I'm a huge fan. And did you enjoy it as a kid? No, oh. no, it's no. always creaked me out a bit. And so, and then you just see the centaur. Now I will probably forever see the centaur. I saw, yeah, like I said, the Rolling Hills of Ireland. You got to come out. You got to come out of your. Med- you got to come now- out of your meditation se- session, and there's going to be a centaur standing over you. <laughs> exactly. Now I've got the centaur. I love it. I used to listen to one when I first started this job. I listened to one that someone. It was called Strange Tales or something. But the idea was that. Someone would tell this story that continued every week, but it was nonsensical. So there was a thread. You kind of got names and places, but... It was made to feel like you're almost stoned, I suppose. Like the, the, <laughs> yeah. where you were trying to follow the thread of a conversation, but you're going, that doesn't make sense. You just said something the opposite of that, and this isn't really. You're not going anywhere. Yeah. This. So I think the idea was that you're trying to listen, and in, and then you kind of get confused, and your brain just slowly shuts slowly down. Slowly shuts down. Yeah. I love it. And that was Tricks. a good. One. Yeah, that was a good one for me. Yeah. Um, oh, you'll have to tell me that. But I think music triggers my brain too much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're yeah. a DJ. You're a, yeah. you're a professional DJ. It's yeah. your job. It's hard to switch off. Yeah. You hear music, you think, well, I should be at the desk spinning some tunes with Triple R. That's what you're thinking. <laughs> it's true. Right. very hard to switch off from that. In fact, do you ever... Pan flute, pan pops, whatever it is. Yeah. Do, you, do you ever get the earworm? The, uh, so sometimes when I go to bed, I also get, I'll get a track. Like it happened to me last night. I got a Lizzo track stuck in my head. Yeah. And it just kind of repeat. It goes of on course. repeat. Do you ever yeah. get that? All the time. All yeah. the time. Um, I think it happens with me a lot with, um, you know, Charlie Pride. You know, so at the end of my um, um, award-winning show, um, The Mission, <laughs> on Tuesday nights, 7 p.m., I always, <laughs> I always, I always finish with a Charlie Pride track, just because it was something that was played on The Mission by Blackfellas in the day, and everyone, you know, means a lot to Aboriginal communities across the place, and um, you know, but I can go to sleep and six days on the road, I don't think I'm making it home tonight. <laughs> Just going that, over and does over. Does it wake you? Is it soothing or is it? That makes me think, feel like I should be attending to my audience. Yeah. <laughs> Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.